Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. On this episode, we'll be asking the question, will we ever be able to travel to an exoplanet? But also make sure you check out this month's other episodes where we interview test scientist Natalia Guerrero in Exocast 43B and cover all things in the exoplanet news in Exocast 43D. So, Andrew, why don't you kick us off with Exocast 43C and discussing our question. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, and I think this is quite an overarching topic that we've set ourselves here. We've even got one of those terrible, terrible qualifying words ever in there. But the question <laughs> that we're going to try and focus on is, will we ever be able to travel to an exoplanet? And I don't know about you two, but this is a question certainly that I've been asked if I, if I give a, you know, a public talk or something. It's usually something that comes up at the end. Um, and, you know, having a, having a little, little bit more of a thought about it at first glance, I probably still say that the answer is is a pretty clear no from me um, and then having done a little bit of re- research for this uh, this episode I'd probably still say no as a little bit of a spoiler um, but I think that you know there's a lot a lot of things to be optimistic about there's a lot of things to discuss and uh, there's a lot of unknowns so maybe I shouldn't be so pessimistic and by the end of the episode I could have changed some things but I think it probably makes sense to to start at the beginning um, if we want to think about traveling to an exoplanet maybe we should think uh, about making our job here as easy as possible and looking at the closest uh, the closest option for us. Um, so a quick uh, Google search will give you a list of the 10 closest exoplanet systems, uh, the closest of which should be well known to all of us, Proxima Centauri, um, obviously being one member of the Alpha Centauri system at just about four light years away. So light years, pretty tricky thing pretty tricky unit to think about, you know, the distance that light travels in a year, what what does that mean? And I've always thought about it as uh, 63,000 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, 63,000 astronomical units per year, which is not really a very easy unit to think about either. And I think a lot of the framing of this problem is about getting the scale right, getting those distances right. Um, but even sticking, sticking with that um, kind of assumption of huge distance and taking some very quick and and loose estimates about how long it might take to get to one of these places at a reasonable speed. Um, what might some of the estimates be? What are the ballpark estimates for this? So I plugged some very basic estimates uh, into some very basic code uh, and I looked at Voyager 1 and New Horizons. Now these are our two currently fast spacecraft as far as I know. I think New Horizons was launched at, at the greatest velocity, whereas Voyager 1 picked up a bit of speed with some gravity assists. Um, so those two, I think, are the fastest um, spacecraft we have. Obviously, they're, they're not um, they're not spacecraft that contain humans. Uh, you know, they were orbiters. They're very, you know, simple, I guess, if you want to want to look at them that way. But just as an example of a, of a realistic, perhaps, velocity that we could, we could get a spacecraft up to, we'll stick with the 17 or the 16 kilometers per second, which uh, those two spacecrafts managed to achieve. And if we take that speed, making no allowances, you know, for gravity assists and alignments and slowing down at the end of this, of course, um, 4.2 light years might take on the order of about 75,000 years to traverse. And this, right, (laughs) and this is why my initial feeling is, no, we probably won't ever be able to visit an exoplanet because of those distances. I don't know, am I being too pessimistic here? No, I think it just really highlights how far away even our closest stars are just 
yeah. how very empty space is as well, which is something that when we're talking about these thousands of exoplanets that have been discovered in a very small portion of our galaxy, it makes us feel like we're surrounded, but we yeah, really are density. very, very lonely when we talk about speeds and distances. That's amazing. That's a huge number. Yeah, I think one one of the way that I kind of uh, thought about it is just kind of if you, if you could fit Earth and the Sun in one room, then most of the planets and most of the, you know the furthest that, uh, that that we have ever gone with spacecraft is is within our building basically. Um, Voyager is now about 150 AU away, but in terms of that kind of scale of like Earth and Sun in one room, it's not even left our neighborhood. It's only something like 750 meters or uh, 2,000 feet away, and it's only moving about an inch a day. And when, and when on that scale, the nearest stars are like a thousand miles. So the distance right. from New York to Florida or the UK to Finland, right? And if wow. you're moving an inch per day and you have to go a thousand miles, then clearly, yeah, it's it's just astronomical. I mean, it is astronomical. <laughs> it is literally. astronomical. Hey, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> That's a really good way of of, uh, of thinking about this here. And I think, as I said, a lot of the problem is about the framing of those distances and making them accessible on the human scale is maybe more than half the trouble here. Yeah, and I think that when we take those speeds, so you said the speed that we're kind of looking at here for Voyager 1 and New Horizons is somewhere in the in the ballpark of 16 and a half kilometers per second. Now, to get to those speeds alone required a huge amount of chance and technology and perfect timing. So yeah. For the Voyager spacecraft, for those Voyager missions, you know, they famously used this beautiful tour of the solar system. You know, they went to the giant planets, they went to see Jupiter, Saturn, and then Voyager 2 also managed to see Uranus and Neptune. That involved some beautiful slingshots. So these are using those giant planets to accelerate the spacecraft itself. So using the gravitational pull of those planets to slingshot the spacecraft off at a higher speed each time. And that chance alignment isn't going to happen again until 2189. So we're not going to be able to do a Voyager-like acceleration and kind of tour of those planets for over 170 years. So what you're saying, Hannah, is that we need to get these spacecraft up to some reasonable velocity without the help of uh, you know, the giant planets. Exactly. And one of the things we're, we're thinking about this right now when we're, we're trying to understand and design how can we get a mission to Uranus and Neptune? How can we study the ice giants in our own solar system? Even allowing yourself to have an 8 to 12 year window where it, you're saying it will take us 8 to 12 years just to get to Neptune, we would have to launch in 2028 to 2032 we'd have to launch within the next 10 years to be able to get a fast enough spacecraft to get to neptune within that time frame so it's all about where our planet is relative to the giant planets in our solar system jupiter is one of the most beautiful things that we can use for these gravitational assists it's huge we can really really throw things around using the (laughs) gravity of jupiter but it means that it has to be in a decent position relative to when when and where we're launching it from and if we're launching it from the earth and even if we imagine this beautiful future where we're launching something from the moon it still needs to be in in a good position so that we can use that gravity we can use that assistance 
Well, one thing that, that I mean, as we heard, 70,000 years to reach an exoplanet, and that was a craft which got the perfect gravitational assist from every giant planet. I think what that says to me is that gravitational assists just don't cut it. You need higher velocities than the gravitational power of the planets in our solar system can give you. So in some ways, the fact that there's no alignment for 100 years isn't limiting at all because you're already limited with that technique of of propulsion effectively. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's also important to consider that those gravitational assists are highly dependent on the mass as well. So the more mass that you want to send, the more you're going to have to get that assistance. So if if we're talking about a mission where you're going to be sending people, maybe, don't know, then if that's one of the criteria that you've got, those aren't going to be enough. You're not going to be able to get that propulsion that you need from gravity assists alone. And it probably won't even help that much. It does seem like we're, we're veering into the very complex area of spacecraft propulsion, which is damn cool, but I will fully admit that this is not my area at all. Um, and I see um, that you guys have put a few notes down. So what have you found out about potential hypothetical other alternative options? We can't use the planets. How else are we going to get to one of these, these exoplanets? So there's actually been quite a few studies, most of which performed in the kind of the heyday of, of, uh, of the 50s and 60s when we had Wild Apollo and we had studies. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I think that was an era really when the progress in space travel and and space exploration really f- seemed exponential right i mean we, we we were about to go to the moon or we'd just been to the moon in the late 60s i guess um and it really felt like we could go to the nearby planets and from that we could go you know wherever we want in the galaxy and so during that era there were quite a few proposals that people made about how you can get to nearby um stars and i think the the, the biggest problem that they both had to overcome is that that problem we have about distance, you know, and but also the fact that space is empty. So uh, not just empty of kind of stuff, you know, you can't pick up supplies along the way, but it's also empty of energy. So most of the, the solar system missions we've sent out, even to, as far as Jupiter, they've been using the light of the sun to survive. You know, they have solar panels. Um, but when you're in interstellar space, that that light is, is, is zero. You cannot use that. So that means that every drop of fuel and food you have to bring them along. You can't stock up on route, right? And that's the kind of trade-off there, actually, is between fuel and kind of human supplies. Because one method is to kind of, is to go slow. So go kind of how Voyager went um, and drift through space for multiple human lifetimes. Because you're talking, as we heard, tens of thousands of years. But even if you could get up a bit faster than that, you'd still maybe need hundreds of years and therefore a few generations of, of humanity on a craft Um kind of think think of like the 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 giant cruise ship from wally right that's what i was thinking of <laughs> that's kind of that's i was trying to count how many captains there were in my head i think there was nine of them right so that was like nine generations of people each successfully fatter in in, in wally but that might not necessarily happen uh, um but yeah so these ultra long cruises you you require far more humans than you would for kind of a short single lifetime you know thing you know mm-hmm. i think the apollo mission was three three men (laughs) obviously there there would be no extra generations coming out of the apollo mission um but in order to maintain genetic diversity you need hundreds thousands of of people to be sent Mm. um and also you need uh to generate food and everything on route and you need all that to be recycled right so you need you know 
growth and farms on board and you also still need energy because you need fuel to do all those things you know light to grow food um, and so this kind of makes any craft uh, hundreds thousands millions of tons um, and it's going to have to be built in orbit like a giant cruise ship um, and so I, I, it, this is this is the the extreme where you go slow and you take everything with you and it seems unlikely just because of how much you have to put on that ship to, to sustain human life for that long. Uh, the other alternative is to go hard and fast. So take a bare bones crew, kind of like the Apollo mission. And basically, instead of you trade out all your human supplies for um, fuel, because if you can get super fast, you know, go 15, 20, 50 percent the speed of light, then you can reach a nearby star system within a human lifetime mm-hmm. and thereby you don't you don't need to procreate effectively um or i mean this could you could even think about this in terms of uh uncrewed mission where you're just sending a probe but you still need um if you want the probe to get there in a human lifetime then you still need to get it up to extraordinary speeds right um and so i i had a little search about how much fuel you require to get to 15 percent the speed of light right so um 15 the speed of light is about uh about 50 million meters per second. Um, and so in order to do that, you, you, could, you could use antimatter. So this is the, one of the, the cases that I, I found that was kind of looking to the future is the best kind of fuel you can bring is antimatter because, of course, if you have 100 or 50 tons of antimatter and 50 tons of normal matter together, when you, you controlled, you know, bring them together. If you're you can creating control that. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Hugh just blase talking about containing antimatter. Fifty tons of antimatter here. Yes. Yeah. Never even made anything near that. No, I like I like your optimism here. Carry on. But if you can if you can store and create antimatter, then right. hundred to- uh, fifty tons of antimatter and fifty tons of normal matter um, is perfectly efficient. You bring those two together and you create energy at exactly proportional to their mass right so e is mc squared so you're producing energy uh, like 100 percent efficiently given the mass that you have on board but could we utilize that 100 percent effectively is there not going to be some some energy lost in the transfer somewhere right i don't know that we've ever made a system that doesn't have some loss no i i mean i, I th- i'm sure there is uh some some loss that you would have there um so and also um so the the, the craft which kind of the designed craft was called Valkyrie, where they where they proposed using antimatter, and um, this was in the fifties and sixties. This was in uh, this was actually one, yeah. This was in the sixties, and it would require the entire global energy budget that we currently, you know, currently produce, not even from the sixties, used exclusively on antimatter production for fifty years in order just to create fifty tons of antimatter. Like it is a ridiculous amount of energy because wow. obviously all that energy that you need to get out when you're using it as propulsion, you have to put in here on Earth first in order to make it. And you have to do that at low efficiency because we can't generate antimatter efficiently on Earth. And then you'd have to get it into orbit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? But this is one way you can get to 15% the speed of light. I love that this is something they came up with in the 60s. This is fantastic. Well, all of these things are, which is crazy. So, I, I mean, one of the things to point out here is when we're talking about these 50s and 60s, what Hugh said at the beginning, where they were they were on the point where they thought this was exponential. I mean, people had only flown a plane in the early 1900s. Then it yeah. took until the 20s 
for them to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. And then by the 60s, they were on the moon. So they had every reason to believe that this just would keep ramping up and up and up and that just huge optimism. But every single one of these, and, and you'll see it throughout science fiction as well, every single future envisioned in that era requires what it would be called an energy revolution. And actually what happened was instead of an energy revolution on Earth, we had a technology revolution. We went from reducing the amount of effort it took in a computer down to something that we all carry around in our pocket. But what we didn't do is have the huge energy revolution that they thought was going to happen during the Cold War and all of these different things where nuclear was becoming really, really rapidly advancing and, and all of this other stuff. So without that energy revolution... We needed we, a Moore's law, basically, for energy. We can't see this, yeah. Yeah. But none of them, if you look at them, very few science fiction, and very few of these programs actually envision the technology revolution that we have gone through. So it's really yeah. interesting to kind of pair those two up. And there was, you know, a lot in, again, in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, maybe into the 70s in this particular paper I'm thinking about, they were thinking about human civilization and, and SETI in terms of energy production. There's this scale that Carl Sagan came up with, the Kardashev Sagan scale, which is supposed to like rate how advanced a civilization might be. And it was all done on like a global energy production, taking a base rate of like, of, of uh, humanity in 18, or pre-industrial humanity as like their, as their base level. And then thinking about, you know, the degree that a, a civilization harnesses the energy in its local environment as a measure of its uh, advancement, basically. So yeah, they were they were always considering this in kind of an energy space. And, and Hannah makes a great point about the fact that we actually thought maybe technology might be the the better way to go with it. So why didn't why didn't the technology then translate into that energy um, revolution? I guess is a whole other uh, other podcast. It's a but... whole other question. It's something that quite a lot of people have considered. But I think. Well, we're seeing it even now when we kind of are hoping to transition into this more sustainable energy is that we're unable to store it. The storage of energy and the storage of that energy is something that we haven't quite mastered yet. And as you see with the solar panels, you know, the next generation of solar panels is getting better and better and better. And that's not just because the capacitance of the solar panels themselves, but the batteries that are being charged by them are able to store that energy for longer and more efficiently. And it's those advancements that we're really needing and really would drive that energy revolution is the storage of energy itself. It's something that's, that we never quite quite got access to. I think as well that... Um energy production is a lot closer to a physical limit than something like the number of chips per, uh, you know, Moore's law, the number of, of chips you can fit per circuit board kind of thing. I think that, that, you know, the energy production from burning stuff, you will never be able to improve that. But it, burning stuff tends to be quite a cheap, effective way, unfortunately, of generating energy. So, so getting over that, the fact that you have something cheap that you can scale up easily, that isn't going to improve in efficiency blocks the development of other things which are more efficient. So it's not really. It's, I don't think it's. It's you can compare it to something like uh, you know technology and Moore's law in the way that, same way. And that that comes down to the different types of propulsion that we were talking about. I mean, as we've seen with a lot of things within our solar system, they use the sun. They use solar panels to really drive those missions. 
But we also have something that's been developed um, for for missions called an ion drive. So using ions to accelerate, you're accelerating these ions up to about 90,000 miles per hour and using that as a very fuel efficient way. And they've, they've done tests on this. They've done a test at NASA Glen in Ohio and they use this ion engine where they had 860 kilograms of fuel and they managed to power an engine for 48,000 hours. So that's the, that's the equivalent of five and a half years of running this thruster engine on ion power. And if you look at that in conventional rocket standards, that would take 10,000 times the amount of fuel for that. So there are technologies that are really driving forward on this, but I think it comes down to the fact that what you, you were talking about, this antimatter, it's a, such an amazing idea where you know it would be efficient if only we could make it. And there's so many different things like that. But right now we're very much kind of locked on in terms of our rocketry, in terms of our power between these electrical chemical rockets. And in some cases, yeah. nuclear as well. I mean, some of the, the Cassini was, was a nuclear powered and so is the Curiosity rover. That's also got a nuclear power uh, and a number of other things do. But we're locked on to these ways of generating energy until we can find a better way of doing that. Isn't there, isn't there a current spacecraft that is an iron-powered, like the Hayabusa or one of the JAXA craft? There's also been some uh, low-Earth orbit iron and iron thruster-powered things, like mm-hmm. Goche was a, a European Earth orbit one that okay. had iron thrusters. But Of course, the problem with the iron thrusters is is they're so, they are really, really long-lasting and they're really efficient, but at the moment we have no way to scale them up. So at the moment they're only useful for really small crafts. You can never, like... Uh send a human on an iron-powered, iron-energy-powered craft at the moment. But I mean, if they can scale it up. But the problem is as well that that you're actually limited for how fast you can go by how fast you expel things out the back, effectively. And iron iron energy, even though they they expel these particles at 90,000 miles per hour, that's only 0.00013 times the speed of light. So actually, that's kind of a speed limit. There's, we're kind of hitting this barrier where you also have to consider that all of this has to run by E equals MC squared. Yeah. So one one way that um, E equals MC squared is obviously quite efficient is through fusion. So this was another way that, that these uh, 1960s kind of futurists considered using to get to the stars. So but the, so when the equivalent of 100 tonnes of antimatter reacting with matter... You need 14,000 tons of hydrogen to do that fusion process because hydrogen fusion, even if you pre-process it to have deuterium and tritium, is so much less efficient uh, in terms of E to E equals MC squared. And suddenly, if you want to propel a 100-ton spacecraft, you need, what, 14,000 tons of hydrogen in order to just to get it to the speed necessary, 15% the speed of light, to reach a star within a human lifetime. Um, and so... I know you mentioned their nuclear power as well. So one other cool thing, which was, well, I'm not sure if it's cool, but <laughs> I find it amazing, is that in the 60s, there was there were plans that uh, Freeman Dyson actually came came up with, who unfortunately died this month, uh, um, which were involved basically launching nuclear bombs and exploding nuclear bombs behind a spacecraft in order to um, to to propel the spacecraft forward at increasing velocities. And in fact, this is one of these methods that can get to something like 15% the speed of light, uh, but it's even less efficient than fusion. So uh, fission of, of uranium is only like 
uh, is about 10 times less efficient than fusion of hydrogen. So you end up needing for that same, you know, equivalent 100 tons of antimatter, you need 128,000 tons of uranium for fission, which I looked up is about a quarter of the world's entire uranium reserves. Wow. Right? So in order to get to uh, Alpha Centauri, you would need like a quarter of the world's uranium in bombs on a ship. (laughs) And have Um, everyone be okay with with setting off a series of nuclear explosions in space. Yes. Well, this is the thing. After after Project Orion, which was the name of this development that uh, Freeman Dyson was involved in, after this was proposed, there was the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and they specifically banned interstellar, well, interplanetary tests of nuclear weapons. So Project Orion, and while that is still in... Uh, in agreement you know the project orion and, and using nuclear bombs to to launch ships is impossible you know it was illegal under current international laws um. but i mean all of these every single one of the things we've just mentioned sounds like it's going to deplete a significant amount of resources here on the earth to achieve it is there a way yeah. that we can get to these exoplanets is how can we get to these exoplanets without that depletion of resources well, I would say probably the easiest one is don't take humans, right? We're the ones that, that are causing all the trouble here. We're the ones that need the radiation shielding and only have these finite lifetimes of squishy bags of meat. So maybe the more realistic thing is if we want to visit these, we might not be able to visit them in person, but we could visit them remotely. And we've discussed yeah. uh, a few of these options on, on the show before. Um, one of the, I guess, the most popular, the most prevalent at the moment is the Breakthrough Starshot project, uh, which, of course, is trying to trying to send a, a probe uh, to... Proxima Centauri, right? Um, and yeah. looking at different uh, propulsion systems uh, involved in that. Yeah, so so Breakthrough Starshot is really interesting. So um, basically they're sending a tiny, a really thin, like many meter squared piece of foil um, that they'll fire a hundred gigawatt laser at. Well, if it happens, which I, I you know, slightly... Um, skeptical that it will and they fire that laser towards alpha centauri and you know focus it perfectly onto the sail of the spacecraft and the spacecraft will accelerate to um 20 speed of light but the 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 size the 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 actual mass of this spacecraft has to be grams rather than like Mm. kilograms right and that includes this sail so you have to make this extraordinarily thin yet rigid sail which we don't know how to to be resistant to that laser being shined concentrated at it yeah, exactly. And I'm guessing that the conversion conversion rate of that energy would also have to be quite high. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, hence probably the focusing beam would have to be extremely narrow, extremely high precision, right? That'll burn through anything if it's strong enough. Like if it's as strong as it needs to be to accelerate. Don't worry, Hannah. Yuri Milner's on it. The billionaires yeah. are going to save save the world, and they'll figure this all out. Sure, I'll leave. I'll <laughs> leave them to it. I'll just be happy when it happens. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> mm. I'm going to still just try and work out how we can get to Uranus and Neptune. I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the the Dragonfly folks are are kind of in the same position at the moment. Dragonfly mission uh, to Titan, obviously, they're going to be launching in the next what a five mm-hmm. five years, right? And that will take. 12 years to arrive at titan so you know they're they're all you know we're in we're in a situation now where we have to start thinking about these inter-solar system distances as being a good fraction of a human lifetime yeah and i think there's a problem there because um a lot of these missions and the grants and the money that fund them and the politics that goes into getting them launched those have to happen on less than human lifetime i think the people you know 
in the US especially, a lot of um, congressmen kind of attach themselves to projects in order to get some recognition when these things happen, you know, to try and push through certain projects. And if those things are not going to happen in their lifetime, will they and will the politicians and will the people be happy to, to invest all these resources into something that they'll never see, you know, happen in 100 years? I'm not sure. I think there's a political aspect that makes missions longer than human lifetimes almost impossible. That's a very valid point here. Um, I guess there are a lot of limits about this, and we've been bounded by, um, you know, physics and E equals MC squared. But, you know, there's a, I don't know about you, but I've heard and I've read a lot of science fiction and, and different, um, very inventive hypothetical ideas for, for propulsion out there. And there are, there are quite a few that are kind of going from the the, the sci-fi into the, the sci area. Uh, and I, I like the idea of the of the solar sails that's kind of something we've touched on with the with the laser driven breakthrough project uh, but the solar sail would use that same principle instead of having the focusing beam you would use photons from the sun to, mm-hmm. to push you along and again you're limited by uh, the conversion rate you'd have to be very light uh, but there is uh, you know an actual uh, project uh, that 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 uses this this technology uh, it's the planetary society's crowdfunded light sail project which is kind of cool i think they're up to light sail 2 now um, and you know they're trying to get some actual tests going uh but again you're limited by that that weight to propulsion efficiency ratio which means that these are going to be limited again to, to gram size stuff um but apart from apart from that i don't know what else is translated really from the from the science fiction to the science science side of of this propulsion argument there's a huge amount of science fiction out there that have looked at propulsion interstellar travel and Quite a lot of them have been tried to be realised by the scientific community. I know there was a few Mm. years ago people trying to calculate whether a warp drive was possible. I mean, taking these ideas from things like Star Trek, which has, you know, famously had the equivalent of iPads. uh, This is not an advert. And and (laughs) tablets and and very flat phones and things like that 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 were used. Um, Taking some of these ideas and, and looking at them and going, is that possible? Is is really an interesting question. And there's quite a few things that all of them kind of fall back on. So much so that they've kind of just become part of the words that you can use. So tachyon, for example, is a theoretical particle which can travel faster than the speed of light. Now, if anyone's ever listen to sci-fi, seed sci-fi, read sci-fi, they will have heard of that word because it's been kind of used. It's been wrapped into the nomenclature of tachyon drives or tachyon beam or tachyon net. And it's just used as something to describe anything that potentially travels faster than the speed of light. And one of the ones that I kind of found interesting is in almost all situations, they use it as a way of communicating. Because we've been talking just purely about propulsion, but you've got to think, if someone's traveling to the next exoplanet, how are we going to hear about it? We have to have that communication back as well. So, you know, looking at these things like these tachyon beams, where they use it to describe the way that they communicate. This was used in June, for example, where they used a tachyon net to capture information that was being beamed at them uh they also in the sci-fi film in 2015 called tomorrowland they use this tachyon monitor where they are able to see back in time because of the speed of these tachyons means that it's warping 
space time somehow and you're able to <laughs> then then see back in time and there's a huge number of things that i think sci-fi has able to teach us about travel that we kind of shouldn't overlook and one of them being the effects of who you're communicating with if we're saying something is most likely not some of Hugh's ideas where we can do it in a lifetime but those short uh, those slow and long missions who are you going to be talking to when you get there who will you be sending that information back to and how you will you be getting that information and a lot of the brilliant sci-fi writers out there have been thinking about these kinds of questions for for a really really long time but i think i'm i don't think we can disagree with your argument your point in the beginning that right now that's not something we can envision going to visit an exoplanet yeah unfortunately you know i was i was, I was hoping that maybe by the end of this i could be convinced um but I don't know. It just, it just seems it seems impossible. The tachyon drive, whilst awesome, does sound more like a narrative device than you know yeah, right? a, a physical thing, right? It, because science fiction writers are limited by the same thing that our scientists are limited by, but they can Im- imagine up some some cool thing like a tachyon drive to get around it. Unfortunately, I don't think we can. So I I, I don't think I've been. I don't think I'm going to change my mind on this one. I don't think, although we do have that word ever in there, which ever. is which is a qualifying one that I don't like. I don't think we'll be able to visit an exoplanet within our lifetimes, certainly. Um, uh, but I don't know about ever. I don't think we I should don't. ever, ever rule ever. out the tenacity of the human race yeah. and its ideas. Can you imagine us on a tiny spacecraft for 80,000 years though, Hannah? Bearing in mind that all of rec- human recorded history is like 10 to 12,000 years, right? <laughs> I would have to multiply that by eight. Uh, I mean... I, no, I mean, I think my hope comes in that we will work out how to travel faster than we have before. Yes. And that each step we get closer and closer to being able to realize that idea of traveling mm-hmm at five ten percent the speed of light but i think you're always going to be limited by the amount of energy needed to get to those speeds i i, I don't foresee i mean you know the speed of light the uh, equation you know the thermodynamic laws these are things that can never be broken and those are the things that are are limiting us because to yeah. get to those speeds you have to have this ridiculous amount of energy and therefore that makes it impossible regardless of what we come up with in the future um is that a limiting amount of energy from the earth specifically what if we were launching these from the moon or from further out in our solar system what if we built something like Tycho station in the expanse where they they've built that out in space and they're building spacecraft and launching from there is there a way that we can use other resources outside of our planet to increase that energy production well, I think, yeah, there certainly is. I think energy production maybe isn't uh, the limiting factor. The kind of, the problem is really the tyranny of the rocket equation. I don't know if you heard this this thing. It's like for every bit of velocity you want to increase, you need extra fuel. But for every bit of fuel you bring, you need more fuel to accelerate yeah. the fuel. Yeah. And it, it's this exponential function whereby if um, if you need to get to a certain velocity and if you need this much energy... You know, then you have to build a craft which is so enormous. Yeah. Even if you're just sending something, you know, even if you want to send a, a few kilograms of scientific payload, the amount of fuel required in terms of like a like a normal non-sci-fi energy propulsion, mm-hmm. um, 
is so massive that the craft is going to be so huge that it's going to require you know apollo levels of gdp spending for like decades to build it in lunar orbit or whatever you know i i i just i don't see a way of getting over those limitations even in the far future although i do i do have to say that i think breakthrough starshot is maybe one of the ways we can get over that is just to go small is to not 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 try to launch tons and kilograms is to go like launch grams of scientific payload and and um and that's actually the only way i see that we could maybe uh travel to an exoplanet in our lifetime is is something like like project starshot all we need to do is to make lasers more powerful than we've ever made beamed more precisely than we've ever been able to do with an ultra thin sail which doesn't exist yet (laughs) and scientific instruments far smaller than we've ever made before so you know and yet that's still our best option. <laughs> yeah, that's that's our best option. Well, that that probably seems like a good and pessimistic place to to end the feature for now. I think overall we've probably come to the conclusion that visiting in person is probably out for now, um, but that maybe visiting remotely via some uh, very small, as of yet unrealized spacecraft is probably going to be our best option uh, for visiting an exoplanet. Now we just need to discover some stargates. And we'll be golden. Get some yeah. wormholes and then n- out there. N- none of this will even be relevant. Then. Yeah, we just then... need some some way to get through space um, that's faster than the speed of light, <laughs> and then we're, then then we're done, right? Well, thanks so much for joining us. That was a very interesting little discussion. I think we had. Don't forget to listen to our other two episodes this month, where you can listen to Natalia Guerrero to chat to us about Tess, and also the Exoplanet news. But thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Tess K-Ops fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast. I have exoplanets.